Welcome to the Money Insights Podcast, where high income earners come to learn wealth building strategies that will take them from high income to high net worth. With your hosts, financial and wealth building experts, Christian Allen and Rod Zabriskie. Welcome into another episode of the Money Insights Podcast, where we talk all things money and business. My name's Christian Allen. He's Rod the Pod Zabriskie. Rod, what's going on, man? Hey, I'm doing great. Although we're hitting a really kind of awkward time in our lives, my wife and I. I shouldn't say awkward. Is it because you're getting old? Well, it has to do with getting old. (laughs) It's right in conjunction with that. But... So we talk about how we have seven kids, right? Well, frequently, frequently, and and sometimes you'll get mixed up. It's eighteen or you know seven, twelve. You'll throw out there forty-two. Yeah. Uh, But what's happening is our five oldest soon, all of them will be out doing their own thing, adult things, and we'll have the two kids left. I'm a little jealous, Rod. Although, can I just tell you, I have five, two of my own three stepkids and they're on the same schedule. So half the time I have all the kids, half mm-hmm. the time I have none of the kids. So half the time you're jealous and half the time I'm jealous. Yes, that's exactly <laughs> right. <laughs> no, I said it is fun to have the kids around though. Like, you know, yeah, there's a, there's like a youthful exuberance. That's, that's nice. On the other hand, you can't really like travel and do all the things you want to do. So, so it's an interesting time for you. Cool. Yeah, and I, I don't know whether to say sorry or congratulations. Well, I'll say this: when our fair, when our oldest was getting ready to leave the home, I had this this like morning that I went through because it was <laughs> it was like this phase of our lives that I really enjoyed having the kids around, spending a lot of time together, doing cool things, and and it's like, oh, this phase is. Not it wasn't out. like ending immediately, but yeah, it's now it's it's it's, it's moving change. They're, they're moving into the a new phase of their lives, which is totally healthy. We encouraged it. Rod's <laughs> I was trying to grandpa. keep grandpa. Rod's gonna be a grandpa soon, I'm sure. Oh, wait, you're already a grandpa. Yeah, yeah. We're uh we're what <laughs> oh, nine months man. in. So man, you are okay. Life's changed a lot for you, Rod. Yeah. Well, I, I think that's worth congratulations then, despite the uh, pain that goes through this change in phase. Mm-hmm. Uh, I congratulate you. Okay, good news, Rod. Today, I'm going to give you the day off. We're not going to record much of anything. And the reason is because today we're going to play for our listeners. Hopefully you took you got a chance to go to the virtual summit that we put on recently. But if you did not, we are going to play our talk from that. We called it the accelerated path to generational wealth. And Rod, I I just thought that it was a really fun topic Mm -hmm. and we were able to build off a lot of the really powerful ideas and strategies and things that the other speakers had already been talking about. And so it just, just worked really nicely. Anyway, without further ado, Rod, unless you have anything, I'm just going to jump right into the accelerated path to generational wealth. impetus for this presentation or talk is is basically that over the last decade since we started uh, Money Insights, the which we call the alternative wealth building firm for high income earners. Since we started the firm, we've met with literally thousands of high income earners um, 
I don't know. We probably meet with a thousand on average a year. So we probably met with five to 10,000 um, high income earning professionals who are looking to take things to the next level. And so what we wanted to do is extract what we believe to be the very best parts and see if we could um, provide a little bit of a roadmap. Now we have a, we have our 10 step formula. This is going to be the accelerated path to generational wealth. And we really feel like it kind of simplifies, but really focuses on the most important and most impactful um, ideas, strategies, and wealth building tools that we have available to us. So with that said, Rod, uh, by the way, Rod, how are you? I'm doing great. Okay. Um, usually when we do our pod, I have to ask how Rod the pod is. And he says, hey, hey, and everybody's excited about that. So do you want to give us a hey, hey, Rod? Hey, hey, I'm doing great. Awesome. You know, it's funny. The other day, my wife says, are, are you just always great? Do you have to say that? And I'm like, well, it's, <laughs> I guess it's just kind of like my thing. I, I guess I am always great. You're like, I'm so, so. Okay. Um, yeah. I'm glad that you're great, Rod. It adds to the energy. Okay. So we're going to do kind of our step-by-step, -step, but uh, before I, we get into the steps, let me just lay out kind of the agenda for what we're going to be talking about. So here we go. Step number one is you've got to maximize your already high income. Obviously, uh, everything we're doing here is is laser focused on high income earners. So this ends up being the starting point where we draw our income from, what we do with it, how we position it to make the biggest impact. The second step is that we've got to incorporate leverage. Now, we put in conservative leverage because that's kind of that's kind of like the phrase that we've, I don't know, earmarked as our own, right? Because we believe in leverage, but it doesn't mean that you're just going to go crazy, right? You've got to be smart about it. You've got to be thoughtful. We like the idea that if we incorporate conservative leverage, we're taking advantage of leverage as a principle and as a tool. We're not taking it over the top and ending up in a difficult situation. Okay. Step three is that we have to invest in high quality alternative assets. So obviously the name of our event is is focused on the alternative space. And um, Rod and I made a little bit of a shift, I guess it was probably between 10 and 12 years ago, where we, when we were originally started in the industry, we were um, focused on the traditional stock sponsored mutual funds um, and basic, you know, the traditional stuff that we, that we hear about. And what we noticed relatively quickly i don't know maybe maybe i'm a slow learner it took me five to six years to figure it out but i learned that i wasn't having much of an impact on people's lives and the other thing i noticed is that when i did get an opportunity to meet with high income earners people who were really excelling and were successful more often than not they were moving into the alternative space and 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 again that opened up an entire new world for us so we wanted to really focus on that we're going to talk about investing in high quality alternative assets. And finally, you have to protect yourself. It's not as not as fun and sexy to talk about, but obviously uh, not protecting yourself can get you stuck and it'll stop you dead in your tracks um, if it's if you're not prepared. OK, and then finally, we're going to do the Q&A. So we'll leave time um, for a Q&A. Anybody that's interested, uh, if you have if you have questions throughout the presentation, just jot them down in the notes. And as we go, uh, as we get to the end, We'll circle back and and answer those. If we have a bunch of them, we can carry some of them over into our Q and A session at the very end, where we have all of the panel. Um, and if we don't, then we'll just kind of roll through it. Okay, Rod. So why don't you kind of kick things off and talk about the kind of step one and why it's so important to maximize our already existing high income? Yeah, absolutely. And 
and I appreciate that both Sharon and Adam uh, touched on kind of this, this dynamic because it's not enough just to have a great income. So Christian has said, we met with a lot of people who have high incomes and I would say the people who become clients understand this principle, but we do meet with a lot of people who their spending matches their income or, or maybe even outpaces their income. Uh, and having a high income, like you worked hard for it, right? You, you are where you are because you worked hard, um, but the, the work isn't done. Let's just call it that, right? Uh, you feel like, hey, I've, I deserve this. I've earned it. Um, and, and great. Like I, I get it. Like, especially these, these, uh, you know, physicians who went through residency and, and worked their heinies off and earned next to nothing. And now they're getting the income. They're, they're going to go spend it. Right. Um, but I would say that from day one, when you get that higher income, look at it closely, make sure that you're not just increasing your spending to match the income. Make sure you're earmarking dollars for investing for the things that we're going to talk about here shortly. Rod, did you just say Heine? Did you say, <laughs> I, did. I think you did. Uh, okay. So, but can I just tell you, that's me. That's been my experience, right? Yeah. As we get, as we become more successful, as we find, as we get more money, it's really easy to increase our spending habits. Yeah. And can I just tell you, I don't think that that's all bad, right? Like we make more money because we want to be able to do additional things and we want to have yeah. freedom and flexibility. The one thing I didn't mention at the beginning of our talk is that it's not just, well, so, so for some people, it's about creating generational wealth. For others, it might just be about creating financial freedom in the, the fastest possible time frame, right? Mm -hmm. Either way, we're going to be doing that. But like you're saying, it's not enough to have a great income. You have to actually know what you're going to do with that income. And, and, and if you do, kind of going back to Adam's positioning, like it's incredible to think back on that. This will bring us into this, our, our next point, which is keeping spending in check. Like if you position those assets, if you position your income in the right places, it doesn't have to be materially different, different in your life. And yet it can still be unbelievably impactful, especially when you take that over a long term. I mean, uh, we talked about how what happens in the later. I think uh, Adam mentioned it was uh, 65 plus that. Uh, why can't I think of his name? Warren Buffett. Uh, Warren mm -hmm. Buffett. Thank you. Generated the majority of his wealth. Like that's incredible. Yeah. So anyway, positioning assets is critically important. It's not enough to have a great income. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So yeah, the keeping the spending in check, uh, I think that kind of goes hand in hand with what we just talked about. So then look at, take a look on the right-hand side here. We're borrowing the same cash flow quadrant. Sharon talked about it earlier and, and kind of laid it out a little bit. Uh, but as we talk through this maximizing income piece here and get into some uh, case studies and whatnot, we want to uh, focus on this, the cash flow quadrant. So again, just to recap, the E stands for an employee, you're earning your income as an employee, S is self-employed, B is business owner, and I is investor. And again, we'll hit on these in, in more detail, but the creative business piece of it becomes huge because of the things that you can do with your income, as well as with taxes and other, a lot of other things that we'll, that we'll hit on as we go. Um, and again, that leads us to our last point here to minimize taxes. We'll, we'll get into some things here as well, but if you just accept that you have to pay the taxes that the IRS tells you you have to pay, then you're going to overpay. Do things, put pieces in place to make it so that you minimize what you pay. You'll still, you'll most likely still pay. There'll be those who will say, no, you have to drive it to zero. And there are those who are doing that. 
Um, but but in, in your world with what you can do, minimize the taxes. So Rod, one of the reasons that we, or one of the reasons we put this create a business on our list, and it kind of seems like almost when I look at it, it almost seems like out of place, maximize income and then create a business, right? Mm-hmm. Well, what we're going to do is kind of fill that gap because what happens is, is that there's multiple ways to create income, right? Mm-hmm. I can create income as a W-2 employee, just like we talked about with our cash flow quadrant, or I can, I can create cash flow as a business owner, as an investor. And basically what's going to happen here is if you create the business and Sharon hit this, hit on this, real estate's a business, right? So maybe I should kind of step back for a second and, and throw that out there. The business doesn't have to be what we traditionally think of. We're not saying like, okay, if you're a physician that works full time in surgery, that you should also go open up a franchise somewhere, Mm -hmm. right? Now, maybe you think that's a great idea and you could do that. But what I'm suggesting here is that what we're suggesting is that you can create a business that is out of the things that you're already doing. We're going to get into this here in just a minute in a little bit more detail. But the kind of the primary point here is that creating a business or through business income has to be one of the two ways that I bring my income in. And the reason for that is because when I bring money in that way, there's an, a, a host of additional things that I can do from a tax standpoint that aren't available to me when I'm in the e, e portion of the quadrant. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, and, and the way that the cash flow quadrant was built is, is progressive. So in that E quadrant, it is W2. Uh, are there things that you can do to, to save taxes and things? Mostly it's things like 401k, right? Uh, there's not much. And, and the limits are, especially for a high income earner, really low. They're not going to do much, much to help you. When you move from the E to the S, the self-employed quadrant, then you can do more, right? Now you have uh, business expenses, which allow you to do th- certain things tax-wise to, to save the, the challenge, and, and uh, again, Sharon hit on this, with anything on the left-hand side of the quadrant, you have to wake up every day and go to work in order to make things happen. If you're self-employed, you've now created some additional tax benefits for yourself, but you're your own employee still, right? You have to th- make things happen, which isn't all wrong. Like Sharon said, she does her passion. She continues to go to work every day, and she makes things happen on that, even in that S quadrant. But then when we move to the right-hand side of the quadrant, if you become a business owner and you're leveraging other people, other resources, so that you, uh, you're growing your wealth without you necessarily having to show up every day, that's where you, you move to a different level. So the B quadrant, and then obviously in the, in the I quadrant, that, that's what we do, right? If you invest in real estate, but again, you have to show up every day. It's an Airbnb, and you're running the whole the whole show. You're you're doing all the upkeep, etc. You're you're an S, right? Don't think of yourself as an I because you are self employed. You're, but when you move to the I quadrant, if you have that same Airbnb, but you've hired out the the upkeep and and you know the day to day and and everything else, and you're spending your time out doing other things, then now you are in the I quadrant. It's the same investment, but it's how you approach the investment that tells you where you are in, in, the, in the cash flow quadrant. Okay, Rod. So next we're going to get into a case study. And I love this case study. Uh, this is a client of ours that uh, Jonah Mink that we've had for a long time. 
and he's just got an incredible story of success. And what's cool about it is that we've literally like watched it from, mm -hmm. I don't know, let's see, he's been a client for maybe six or seven years, something like mm -hmm. that. And we've watched this progression and it's been really incredible to watch. So thanks a uh, quick shout out to Jonah. Thanks so much for letting us use your story. And uh, that's a great picture. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. So Jonah, when we first met him, he was a, a W2 employee as a physician, um, but he had, he'd caught the vision. He knew, he knew he wanted to change things. He knew he wanted to move over more into the alternative investing world. Um, but he had been a W2 employee and pretty much all of the investing he had done up to that point was in the traditional side of things in, in stocks, bonds, mutual funds, um, partially inside of the 401k side, but also even outside of that in, in after-tax dollars. Um, but he knew he wanted to do something different. So uh, next thing he did is he decided, hey, I'm going to start my own practice. Okay, I'm going to be a practicing physician, seeing patients. So he moved uh, from the E quadrant, no longer living in that world. Now he's moving to the S quadrant. So uh, he's in a better place. He's self-employed. He, he, he now has a business. He can do different things from a tax standpoint. Uh, but again, he, he, either he shows up or, or the money isn't, isn't there at the end of the day, right? Um, but it's but it's progress. And then over the net over the last several years, what he's been doing is is developing a telehealth business. And as you know, with telehealth, you can do that from anywhere, right? So he splits his time for in, in several different locations uh, in the US and, and even in Israel. And, uh, and he can do all of this as a business owner. Again, does he spend time in that business? Yes. But is he leveraging the resources of a lot of other people and uh, systems to make a lot more of his time? Absolutely. And so this is where he moved from the S quadrant now to the B quadrant. And I put in, oh, go ahead. Did you have something? Oh, no, I was just getting excited to talk about the fact that he also takes things to the next level by adding the level of profitability using yep. the investment optimizer. But what I was thinking about, Rod, is that since we don't have a lot of context on the investment optimizer, we better do like a minute and 30 second overview of what that is so the people who haven't heard us know exactly, or at least they have a general idea of what we're talking about and know where they can go to learn more. Absolutely. So, and Adam hit on this a little bit a minute ago, um, at a high level, basically what we're doing is we're adding an additional layer of profitability to your investing. So in Jonah's case, he, he is in that B quadrant, but he's also in the I quadrant where he invests in other things. Again, we'll get into more, more of what those alternative types of alternative investments might look like. But when he does that, he flows the money through, again, what we call the investment optimizer. And specifically what that is, we'll put it this way. When, when we meet up with a lot of people who are in the position where, where Jonah was when we first met him, the money that he was going to be putting into investments, he was kind of hoarding inside of a savings account. Right. And that's pretty typical. You build up the money in the savings account, take that money, go out and invest it, create cash flow, flow all that money back into the savings account, build it back up and go out and do it again. Right. I call it the opportunity fund, the place where you keep that money between deals. The reason we choose that is because of the safety and the liquidity of that account. Uh, so you might choose a money market or something like that. Right. Uh, the problem is that while it's there, it's just not doing much for you, especially before last year, it was doing literally almost nothing, 0.1% or something. Now you might get a couple percent, but still that feels, it, it's really difficult when, when inflation is at six, seven, eight, 10%, um, but, but your money when, when it's between deals is sitting there and earning even 2%. So what we do is we, with the investment optimizer, we set up a 
specially designed life insurance policy that gives you the safety and the liquidity. But what it also does is it gives you in growth inside of the account. There's some guaranteed growth. And then there's also some dividends that are paid uh, that are very consistent. Um, that growth is tax-free so that you're you're actually flowing the money. It's the same dollars flowing into the same investments, but by putting in the investment optimizer first, you're creating a place where you have that that growth average of you know five percent as interest rates keep going up. Then you know we'll see higher than five percent, but five percent tax free growth on those dollars. And what happens is that money goes into the account. That's called the bucket of, of the insurance policy. When we use it, we don't actually take the money out. We're able to use a loan against those dollars. That's the money we take out and invest. So you literally have your money sitting in the account, continuing to grow while you've loaned against it to go out and and grow, uh, you know, build wealth elsewhere. Again, the same places you're going to invest anyway, and that's the arbitrage. And and we're going to talk a little bit more about this in our next section when we get into leverage. Um, but I think that's a really good overview. So basically, a recap is instead of using a bank account, we're using a specially designed life insurance policy that's generating a five plus percent return. And we're going to use that to invest through because of the unique um, leverage opportunity that life insurance provides as well as tax benefits and return. Okay, Rod, let's talk about, um, let's make sure we hit on minimizing taxes before we move on to our yeah. next one. So a couple of things to think about. Obviously, most people know this, and this becomes especially true as a high income earner, um, particularly if you're not at a place yet where you've learned how to uh, minimize taxation. It's absolutely our largest expense, right? So especially if you haven't done some planning, sometimes like it's as much as 40 cents on the dollar that's just going out the window, right? So you have to be thinking about the potential of what that could represent. And that's what we wanted to help people do is think about it in terms of, well, okay, it's not, it's not as simple as, actually, let me back up. If I want to build generational wealth, um, the dollars count, the money counts, right? And mm -hmm. so what we want to do is suggest that if you're not doing the things necessary to minimize taxes yet, and obviously you'll get some great ideas from Tom here in, here in the next couple hours, but if you're not doing that yet, make sure that you make it a priority because it is the largest expense and it represents a massive opportunity cost over time, which Rod's going to go through right now. Yeah. And, and when you th think about that opportunity cost, it's for every dollar that you pay in taxes, in order to get that dollar back, you have to earn not just that, but but the amount that it took to get there. So for example, if I have in a minute here, we're going <clears> to <throat> we're going to show an example where if someone saved fifty thousand dollars in in taxes. Right. And what, what that looks like over time in order, or if, if I save $50,000 in taxes, what that represents is not just the 50,000 that I have in my pocket. It's the 150 or whatever it was that I would have had to earn in the, in the future to, to get that in my, back in my pocket. Right. So what we're going to do is we're going to look at a, uh, an example here where if, if we said, Hey, you know, let's take it to 40 year old who, kind of gets this thing figured out is now in a place where, where they're saving taxes. If they hadn't have done that and they had paid an extra $50,000 a year for the next 20 years until they retire at age 60, what does that represent? It's obviously the, the 50 a year for, for 20 years, right? Um, but it's not just that it's what you could have earned on those dollars. So if we assume in this group, a conservative 10% uh, earnings rate compounded over the 20 years, 
when you get to the end of the 20, it's actually $3.1 million of money, wealth that you don't, you, you would no longer have because you paid out that 50,000 a year in taxes over those 20 years. That's insane. Um, and we don't want to be crazy about it, right? Like we've heard stories about the, the iPad that costs like a billion dollars. And so yeah. we don't want to take that necessarily to extremes. We realize that there, there is a way to do that. However, our experience, our experiences, as we've been meeting with people, it's just so common that there's, we'll call it fat, right? There's extra meat mm -hmm. on the bones that could be looked at and worked toward reducing. Rod and I do that ourselves consistently and are working toward doing this exact same thing. So we really believe in this and uh, just want to make sure that people are considering the massive impact that taxes can play. Um, and by reducing those, it gives us a huge opportunity to accelerate our path. Okay, Rod, let's move on to step two. Okay, can I hit on one thing really quickly? This, this oh, last yeah, yeah, point. sorry. Go. The, the focus on tax savings and not just tax deferral. So we talked earlier about Jonah when he was a W-2 and putting money in his 401k or whatnot. That often is presented as if it's, hey, you're saving on your taxes, but it's not a savings. It's just, you're just pushing it down the road. You put that money in the 401k, you don't pay the tax today, but later when you're in, in, in retirement and you're taking that money out, that's when you'll pay the tax. So you push it down the road and, and the hope is, or, the, or at least the conversation is around paying uh, less tax later than you would if you did it today, which may or may not be true. If, if all, all of your plans come to fruition, then hopefully for most of us, that actually wouldn't be true that we pay lower tax when, when we're there. Um, but that's the, that's the story that's at least told. What we're talking about here is actual tax savings. So not just pushing it down the road, putting it in a place where you'll pay a tax later, but actually creating tax savings where uh, you're paying less in taxes today and that's permanent. You're not going. They're not going to. The IRS isn't going to come back later and say, "Oh, you, now you pay, now you have to pay the tax." This is Rod's favorite narrative. Nobody forget it. You want to make sure that tax savings are happening, not just tax deferral. Yes, sir. I like it. Okay. Okay. okay sorry about the jump start, Rod. Okay. Nope. Next, we're going to talk a little bit about uh, what we call conservative leverage, and um, really the the key here is is that if you want to build generational wealth or if you want to accelerate your path to financial freedom. Leverage is critical any way you shake it, um, but we want to make sure that we do it in a, we want to be thoughtful about it. We want to be wise. Uh, we don't want to overextend ourselves. So first off, Rod, talk a little bit about uh, point one, not all risks are alike. Yeah. And, and I think you kind of just hit on it. The reason we use conservative leverage is because there are ways to use leverage debt in a way that really benefits us. Adam is hitting on a system that is built around uh, creating better systems, paying down le leverage where you don't want it, putting it where you want it, where you can use it, having uh, the, the HELOC or other lines of credit that you can access and use to your advantage. And again, you always want to be smart about it. You, you don't, we don't throw out the, the due diligence uh, that, that we otherwise would have used when, when we're doing it. Uh, just because, hey, it's it's quote unquote free money, but um, we want to recognize that there's a, there's this concept of a risk adjusted return. We're going to talk about it again here in a minute in the alternative uh, asset space. But risk adjusted return basically just means that we don't have to take on more risk in order to create a better return for ourselves. And leverage is the best place, the best example of doing that. And in our case studies that we'll talk about here in a minute will really show you how that plays out. 
And not only is it, uh, it's also in the alternative space, right? So that component has a ha makes a big difference because what's available to, to us in the traditional space is much more difficult on average to leverage, right? There's a few places we can do it, but you know, utilizing real estate, like almost almost every form that we that we purchase and invest in real estate in, ends up being through leverage. Yeah. Uh, okay, so a couple of thoughts here. Due diligence is always critical. That's kind of obvious, but it's amazing how often um, we we see situations where people haven't done the due diligence that's necessary to make sure that they're um, connecting with you know good investors, good operators. If it's like a syndication or something like that. Um, Make sure you do the due diligence. Okay, Rod. So the the thing that most people think about when they think about leverage is financial leverage, mm -hmm. and the the thought comes to my mind. And we're gonna we're gonna show an example of this in a second. But if I just think about the difference between using real estate and mutual funds for the average person, mm -hmm. and you know whether I'm doing that through my TD actually TD Ameritrade just got bought so my formerly TD TD Ameritrade account or if I'm doing that through a qualified plan, the same thing applies. It's, it, I'm usually not leveraging that in any meaningful way. So if my mutual funds get 7%, they get 7%. Mm -hmm. If my real estate, let's say that I put 20% down on it, now I have, and this is obvious, right? This is just math, we all know this. Yeah. But if I, if I use my real estate and I put 20% down, I'm allowing that money to work off the entirety of that value. So just by doing that like it's kind of obvious but the math is there so you have to put it into place okay we also want to to emphasize the fact that there are multiple types of leverage that exist um we talked about financial leverage the most obvious obvious and most common but one of the things that we extracted kind of as we were trying to build this is that most of the people who are ultra successful have an ultra high net worth, um, successful businesses and lives in general, they're doing more than just leveraging their finances. They're also being smart enough to leverage time, talents, and synergy. And again, there, there's a lot of ways that this could play out, but time is way more valuable than money. And the faster that we learn that principle, the better off that we'll be across the board. That's been like eye-opening to me uh, because it's amazing just stepping back and seeing how much more I can get done just by um, being thoughtful and leveraging my time, but also leveraging other people's time, talents, and synergy. Rod, do you have anything Absolutely. else to add as it relates to the different types of leverage? Yeah, maybe just with, with the synergy uh, is by by putting different things in place, we can make them work together. And when they work together, then it creates that leverage. So for example, I mean, Adam's uh, shred method is a, is a perfect example of that. We'll talk a little bit later here about uh, a captive insurance company. And, and when you combine that with another strategy, so just tuck that in the back of your brain. Cause when we come back to this, that's the synergy between two strategies. Either one of them is very valuable. And in, in both uh, of the pieces, you go through a different thought process, different decision-making process when you implement it. But because you have both of them, when you put them together, then it makes a difference. The, the investment optimizer is another example of that, right? It adds an additional layer of profitability to the investing that you already are and will be doing in the future. 
Yeah, that's a, I think that's a really good point because synergy, even that we sometimes think of it automatically as like human synergy, right? Mm -hmm. But in this case, we're talking about human synergy. That's true, but also could be synergy between ideas, strategies, thoughts. Um, and that's those examples that you gave are really great examples of that. Okay, Absolutely. so next, Rod, uh, we are going to get into our case study and we're going to talk about the difference between investor A and investor B. We'll see who comes out better using debt and using no debt. Yeah, absolutely. And you touched on this a little bit ago, um, but oops, here we go. what we're going to do is we're going to say investor A uses no debt. So buys a $100,000 piece of property, puts the whole, the whole full 100000 down. He worked hard. He, put, he set the money aside. He has it. He's going to go buy a $100,000 piece of property. So at, at the end of the day, day one, net worth is at 100000 okay? okay? Investor B takes the same $100,000, but instead she goes and buys a, a property worth 500,000, uses her down payment, gets a $400,000 loan. At the end of day one, her net worth is the same, the 100,000, right? The equity in the in the property is 100,000 still, right? So it's a tie, Rod, just do this. It doesn't make a difference. Yep, right now we're good. Okay. okay, but then time passes. And we're gonna look at the end of year one. So in the first year of ownership, if we look at investor A, Let's say that, uh, that he was able to produce 5% of cash off of his operations, okay, net net after taking in the rents. Let's say the, the value of the property went up by 3%. So you add the five and the three together, he, his net worth went up to 108,000, okay? With investor B, the same percent, you apply the same percentages. She also produced 5% net cash from her operations. But because the property is five times as large, she returned 25000 off of that. The appreciation went up 3%. But again, larger property, therefore, uh, she went up by 15000 on that. And she started with the loan, but she's paid down a portion of the loan and uh, gained in equity an additional $5,900 off of that. So her, her net worth now went up from 100000 to 145902 and just so that everybody knows, that's a bigger number, right? So if you look at the end of the day in that first year, uh, while investor A saw around an 8% ROI, and, and he was probably pleased with that, because of the leverage, that's the only difference between the two, because of the leverage, investor B saw a 45% ROI in that first year. Uh oh, you're muted. Well, I, I can't think out loud very well when I mute. Um, okay, so I was just thinking out loud here, Rod. What's the downside? Let's just make sure we hit on both sides of this. What would be the yeah. downside to be considering as investor B? She looks she looks great, by the way. She's like very confident, confident. in what yeah. she's doing. He's yeah. maybe a little um, on edge, but what would be the reason why, is there any reason why you wouldn't, or what would be the reason to consider to not take on that debt? Yeah, the, the people that I hear from in that camp, it, I think it's fear-based. Um, they're, they're concerned about what may happen uh, if whatever, they don't have enough, they lose a renter and so they don't have enough cash flow. Uh, so again, we use that word conservative leverage for a reason because uh, you don't want to leverage yourself to the hilt. You want to maintain liquidity. You want to have backup plans and, and still work very smart inside of the investments to make the most of, of the opportunities to, to create that growth in there. Uh, so 
don't take this as if this is the only thing that she's doing and, and all of her money is in that um, because you you absolutely want to go in and have some contingencies built into it. Okay, here's the good news, Rod. It's really, really easy to plan for that, right? Mm-hmm. The easiest way to do it is keep cash on hand. If I keep cash on hand, I can always pay my bills. I can take care of the situations when a renter comes. So liquidity mm-hmm. is the key. And as long as I do that, then adding that additional layer of profitability through, in this case, leverage makes a huge difference. Yeah, and, okay. and it can be what Adam talked about a minute ago too, about having a line of credit set up, whether it's against her primary residence or even against this this piece of real estate that has some equity by having a line of credit. Now you have created some liquidity for yourself as well. Okay. Okay, Rod, you, you didn't think that we could get through our presentation here without at least mentioning our core strategies. So we've talked a little bit about the investment optimizer and how to use it to add a layer of profitability. Next, we're going to talk about how to use the capital avalanche to basically bring conservative leverage into your world in a really meaningful and impactful way. Yeah. And, and what we're going to do is we're going to take the capital avalanche. And again, I'll describe what, what that is for anyone who's not as familiar and compare that against someone who, who uses a very, like the exact same product, um, but, but just not using the leverage. So here we go for an investor A. Uh, she is starting up an index universal life insurance policy. And again, in the capital avalanche plan, we use a combination of whole life and indexed UIU, indexed UL, IUL. So, um, so what she's doing is she's saying, Hey, I'm going to do this, create what often you may have heard it called a LERP life insurance retirement plan, putting money into this kind of maxed, uh, overfunded life insurance policy to build up the cash value to create tax-free income later. And so that's what she's doing. But again, she's starting up the life insurance policy. She's building it so that she puts in a hundred thousand a year over the next 10 years into this IUL. So a to- her, the total amount she's put in is now a million dollars. Okay. And we'll talk in a minute about what that does for her down the road for investor B. He's saying, okay, I like that, that concept of putting it into this type of a vehicle. Um, the, confidence in, in what it's going to do and how it's going to grow and et cetera, the kind of the downside protection that IUL gives you guarantees in this case, because we're going to be using a combination of IUL and whole life, the guarantees you get there. And in his case, he's putting the same hundred thousand a year over 10 years for a total of a million dollars. But let me just explain what's happening in addition to that, where the leverage comes in, because in year one, he puts his hundred thousand into the, the life insurance policies. Okay. So he's put a hundred percent of it in at this point in time, but then in year two for the, that year one policy, uh, the money is continuing to go in a hundred thousand a year, but now it's coming in from a loan from the bank. Okay. So, so maybe one, can I stop on two things, Rod? And then, yeah. and, and we'll get back to where you're at. So two things, first off, when we build the policies, just like with the investment optimizer, it's built in a way that's focused on minimizing cost and maximizing cash. It's okay. super critical that it's built that way. We always do it that way a hundred percent of the time. Um, and I think that was the main thing I wanted to hit on. Okay. Keep going. Yeah. Great. Great point. Um, so we're using that type of policy a uh, hundred thousand a year going in, but again, starting in year two for those initial policies we set up. Now that money is coming in as loans from the bank. Okay. 
commonly called premium finance, right? Yes. So if you're familiar with that idea, now we're, we're switched to the direction of how it's going, right? One of the things that we love about this concept is that it doesn't require outside collateral like most mm -hmm. premium finance designs do. So what we've done is we've created a self-contained premium finance design that's safer and more conservative, but shockingly is actually producing quite a bit more income than the traditional models. Right. Yep, absolutely. So it puts it in that conservative leverage piece, right, the, the, on that side of the line because of that initial cash value that's created when he puts in his first 100000 That's why we don't ever have to post any collateral from outside because as we continue to put money in through the loans from the bank, it's building that cash value. The, the value that we have in the policy is always staying ahead of any loan that we're carrying in conjunction with that. We always so, have a positive balance, in other words. Yeah, I was just going to say a net equity account mm -hmm. that always exists. And part of our focus inside this is making sure that that net, net equity stays strong and robust throughout the life of it so that when we have those, those ups and downs that are uh, inevitably going to come, we're in prime position to roll through those without much problem. Yep, absolutely. So, but here's the cool thing. So I talked about where he put in the first 100,000 in year one, and then we financed after that year two, three, four, 100,000 a year still going in, but we're, we're adding that to the bank. But I'm saying here, he continues putting 100,000 into it. So now we have that first policy from year one. Well, in year two, we set up new policies. His next 100,000 goes in as year one payments on a second set of policies. And then in future years, financing. So when we talk about uh, over the course of the 10 years, him putting in a million dollars, that's what he put in out of pocket. But if we go back to even just that first one, he put in the first hundred thousand, but then we financed everything every year after that. So a million total went into that first leveraged off of his original hundred thousand. And then in year two, we started again. So by the end, there's a million dollars a year going into those policies because of the what what he was what he created and what we're now leveraging to to continue to build. Okay, so the question is, Rod, what does that mean? How does it work? What does out? it do for us? That's yep. the question. Yep. Okay, so our investor A, who's the traditional kind of LERP approach, when she wants to start taking income, uh, we're gonna we build it on that side. It's an it's an equal income. Uh, $102,000 a year of income coming out of it, uh, which she starts at age 60 through age 90. Um, so she gets a total of a little more than $3.1 million of income, tax-free income, right? So not bad, right? Uh, and there's an additional death benefit that pays out when she dies at age 90. So the total benefit that she would have received out is a little over $3.4 okay, off of her, the original million that she put in, Okay. Our, our investor B, who, who leveraged uh, his policies, when, uh, when we compare the income that they're receiving at age 65, she's at the 102. Well, he's already far ahead of her at 320,000 in income at age 65, right? And it continues to go up. That leverage, we're continuing to leverage money going into the plan. That allows us to create additional uh, higher levels of income as time goes on. And so he's receiving an increasing income every year. It's going up fairly significantly so that between 65 or it was at 320. And when he, by the time he gets to age 90, he's actually getting a $1.9 million 
uh, of tax-free income in that year. Okay. So when you combine all of those years from age 60 to 90, then he received $27.2 million of income, tax-free income. And when he passes away, there's this tax-free death benefit that pays out at 24 million. So the total benefit coming out to him and his beneficiaries is 51.6 million. That's crazy. So obviously looking at the numbers, the comparison's kind of wild, right? Mm -hmm. um, but it's not as crazy as it seems. It's just a matter of understanding the math behind it. And if your goal is to either create generational wealth or get to financial freedom faster, then this ends up being one of those strategies that you can put in play that will tremendously expedite that process. So really Absolutely. cool. The numbers are insane. Okay, Rod, we got to we got to move through some of this stuff. We've okay. got a lot of stuff left. We're doing it. Okay, step three. Okay, so step one and two, we went through first step is I got to make sure I go through my steps, Rod, maximize, maximize. income, yep. step two, conservative, um, um, implement conservative leverage, step three, invest in alternative assets, we said, invest in high quality alternative assets. This is critical. And this was, to be totally honest, like the biggest game changing moment for my um, wealth building life, I guess we'll say it, because the difference, um, the ability for us as a as an organization to grow and me personally, to expedite my growth curve happened as we started to move away from that traditional place and move into the alternative space, both teaching it and implementing it ourselves. So from that standpoint, it's just like one of the most critical things. Okay, that said, Rod, you talked about risk adjusted return. That's just making sure that you're considering the return along with the risk, right? It's not you can't you can't look at one or the other to get a great feel for it. You have to be considering both in cohesion to determine if the asset makes sense to invest in. Do you have anything to add on risk adjusted return? Yeah, maybe just that in the traditional investment world, when when people talk about stocks, bonds, mutual funds, they'll talk about they'll have this like this this straight line curve that says the more um, the higher return that you want to create, the more risk you have to take on in order to do that. And in the alternative world, that's not necessarily the case. With the real estate, especially when you add leverage and some of these other things, you can increase a, and create a much larger return than uh, like that, again, that straight line curve, but without taking on undue risk or, or an excess of risk. I know thousands of people, Rod, thousands of people that, we, that we've met with over the years who would suggest that investing in real estate is far more, far less risky than mm. investing in the market, at least for them. Now, yeah. oftentimes, you know, part of the benefit is in the real estate world, we have some control over it that we don't have um, yep. in the market. But anyway, I think the, the point there is, is really important. Um, one of the thoughts here that one of the things that we've kind of extracted or noticed is just that the, the people who are ultra successful, they like to have more control, right? <laughs> we have a lot of DIY wealth builders. Yep. But, but the other piece that we've noticed is that it's often matched to their interests and expertise. And we've seen this with really great clients. I can think of a client here in Utah, um, John, who I won't use his last name because we haven't asked him, but John, who not only um, had a traditional practice, but then he started to build other things on top of it. So a second yep. business that was, I'm trying to think of uh, what it's called, Rod, but what's his second business Blood infusion thank you infusion so and and he's done incredible with it but what he's done is he's taken things that he cares about something things that he's passionate about and he's been able to build on those and that's just a common thread that we've seen among successful yeah. clients 
Yep, absolutely. And Sharon hit on it as well. It's a it's a key thing. If you if you want to start building your alternative assets, uh, especially as we talked about business earlier, look first at the things that you already know and love and are passionate about and build on that. One of the other benefits that we get in the alternative space that we don't traditionally do we don't get in the traditional space is tax savings opportunities. We've talked a lot about this. We won't go into a lot of detail. Certainly, Tom is um, the best person to talk more about this. But the, the bottom line is that you'll find as you move into that space, if you haven't been there yet, that not only is the risk adjusted return oftentimes better, but then in addition to that, I've got these tax benefits, potential tax savings that I can't get in other ways. So it's really, yep. really critical that way. Finally, before I get give you the case study, Rod, let's talk true diversification. So this is one of those things that I, I think when I look at it, when I take a step back and look, most people look at their assets as in, you know, the types of things that they're invested in. But one of the benefits of alternative assets is that they're oftentimes hard, real assets. And mm -hmm. so we have the opportunity to, di to diversify in an even more meaningful way. Recently, Rod, I bought $100,000 of gold. And um, while I probably will never use that, it'll just kind of sit and do its thing for a long time. It's nice to feel like another layer of um, diversification that you know you just don't get in by adding mutual funds. And even if I were to add precious metals and mutual funds, it just isn't quite the same as purchasing yeah. a piece of real estate that I have control over or working with a, you know, buying into a syndication that I have all this opportunity with. So from that standpoint, I love the fact that alternative assets create what we call true diversification. And with that said, Rod, why don't you take us through our case study? Yeah. The the first step in that is we often get asked, okay, well, what, what are alternative assets? Like, where can I go to, to capture these? And real estate is, is the first one. It's probably the biggest one. Um, but we also want to point out, you can invest in real estate in many, many different forms. So Sharon laid out a whole bunch of different ways. Um, and so, again, in our case study, we'll get into different piece, different ways that Sean has invested and kind of what he likes best. Um, businesses is another big one. Again, think first about the things that you're already doing, that you already know about, that you have passion on, on that. Uh, life insurance, again, in many forms, in the ways that we've talked about here. Um, but also below we talk about life settlements and other ways that life insurance can create opportunities for, for alternative investing uh, notes. And this includes mortgage notes or hard money notes or all kinds of different ways in debt where you're, where you're be becoming the lender uh, precious metals. You mentioned on that crypto. And then our last bullet point here, we couldn't like keep going bullet points down the lines, but collectibles, different funds, life settlements, oil and gas, ATM fund, et cetera. The list goes on and and will continue to to grow uh especially as for the individuals that are out there looking for opportunities okay so let's yeah. let's jump in on our our case study sean graham so again sean is a physician lives down in baton rouge and uh again we've worked with him for the last you know probably six years and and seeing kind of the progression of a lot of things that he's doing but let's start with to begin with for his work situation he's a partner in his own practice so again this fits in kind of the S quadrant because he's self-employed. He goes to work every day, but it's also in the B quadrant because he's leveraging the work of a lot of people around him as well. Um, he is a surgeon. And so he bought into the surgical center that he does his work in. And again, that becomes uh, a way of leveraging 
the the who you know and the what you're doing, someone has to own the surgical center. Why not the surgeons? And I know that that's often the case, but it's often not the case. In his case, he he, he is a partial owner. Uh, one of my favorite things for him is that he bought into boats. Again, he's in Louisiana, down on the on the coast. There, he had uh, bought into a, a a fishing charter business, but is actually a, a tax play for him because if he actually owned the fishing charter business, there were less tax opportunities for him than in in this case. What he did was he actually bought the boats and then rented them to the the charter business because in doing the rentals, he was able to to create a lot more tax benefit in doing that. Um, again, something he was passionate about. And what's funny about that is, is that the rental business, it was profitable, but as it turned out, it just so happened his timing was amazing in, in the boats because he started getting crazy offers on his boats, uh, ended up selling one of them because he, he made a lot more out of it by selling it than he would have by continuing to rent it out. Um, he's invest. Oh, did you have something? I was just going to tell you, Rod, that we need to keep moving. So moving less moving. commentary, more point hitting. <laughs> okay. So uh, again, he, he invests in syndications, uh, syndicated real estate in a lot of different areas, raw land, um, a medical billing company, again, that that's uh, linked to tied to his medical practice, but also a marijuana company, um, oil and gas uses the investment optimizer to, to add that additional layer of profitability we talked about. And he also has a fully funded premium finance life insurance policy, kind of a, a, sister to what we talked about, the capital avalanche, we call it the retirement accelerator. Yeah. And Sean's a, he's an amazing client and it really has been cool to watch the progression and of just what he's accomplished. So super cool. Yeah. And he learned a lot of lessons again, going back to control. That's that, that's the thing he uh, focuses on right now is things that he has more control over and then opportunities that are turnkey. So he's not spending time. He doesn't want to spend time uh, and, or having the chance of capital calls. So he's investing in things where, where that's not having to happen. Okay. Finally, we're going to just hit on these really quickly and then we're going to, um, jump over to a couple of questions, Rod. So, um, like I talked about at the beginning, protecting yourself isn't as fun to talk about, but it's every bit as critical as all of the other steps. And so here's just a kind of list of what are those key, most important things to be thinking about? Business entity structure is critical. Um, asset protection in various forms, and and you want to have an asset protection attorney to make sure that you're you're putting in place a strategy that keeps potential lawsuits um, from your assets. Obviously, death and disability, right? If I if I die or become disabled, that's a really quick way to stop my my generational wealth building in its tracks. But it can also be, and this is kind of interesting way to think about it. It can also be a very simple way to continue on that path where, so if I plan appropriately and I do the right things, then that generational wealth or financial independence that I'm looking for can absolutely still exist just by putting the right things in place. Um, similarly with auto, oh, oh, wow, let's try that again. Auto homeowner umbrella insurance. Those are all things that, well, auto and homeowners are things that the state requires us to have. Umbrella insurance is not. But that's that one we throw on there because it's so cheap. If you're a high income earner, um, just having that extra layer, you can get a couple million dollars that will just cover kind of any and everything. And it costs kind of pennies on the dollar. So it's really cheap and worthwhile to have. And then finally, Rod, why don't you just quickly hit on captive insurance and then we'll answer a few questions. Yeah. So this will be a teaser. We'll, we'll move through it quickly. But 
Um, captive insurance is just a way to take on uh, or to, to cover self-insure for a lot of the, the risks that we face. You still keep the auto homeowners um, liability type of coverage, but if you're uh, a dental practice and you have uh, liability or risks that you're not insuring against, you can actually self-insure. It creates some amazing tax benefits as the money flows into there that, that creates deductions, um, but it's still capital that you can go out and invest, et cetera. Uh, and then this is the one that I was mentioning earlier. When you combine a captive insurance company with the premium finance concept, then you can actually take, uh, you get that original deduction, which is against your ordinary income. And inside of the captive insurance company, that would normally turn that from ordinary income tax to a capital gains tax, which creates a savings, obviously. But when you combine it, that synergy with premium finance, then it can take that ordinary income down to tax-free. So again, that's, that's crazy a teaser. We won't, we won't get into too much more detail on that, but let us know if you're interested in learning more about that. Yeah, that is crazy. So many people are doing captive insurance companies just because of that initial, well, well for the protection first, but then mm -hmm. secondly, for the tax benefit where they're just now having to pay long-term capital gains, but then to take it to another level and remove the tax altogether. It's pretty incredible. Okay, Rod, I'll just roll through these and um, we'll, kind of take them one by one. What sort of investment product are you talking here without paying taxes? Okay, good question. Anonymous attendee, uh, basically we hit on a variation of different things. And so we were kind of talking high level. We talked about life insurance as a way to uh, reduce taxation, real estate, hard assets. All of these things are really great ways to do it because of things like depreciation, which we can take um, and uh, by doing those types of things in the alternative space. So so I guess the easiest way to answer your question is there are many alternative assets that can minimize and reduce taxation, and we would be more than happy to talk offline about what more of those are. But if you look at our list there that we brought up, many of those will do exactly what we're talking about there. Okay, Rod, the next one, um, I'll, why don't you take this one? Will the cost yeah. of Will the cost of life insurance increase over time since it's using IUL? Yeah, it's a great question. And, and the answer is that as we age, the cost of insurance does get go higher and higher. And that's true with IUL. That's true with whole life. But when you look at the, the actual cost that's inside of it relative to the amount of cash value you, you have in there, then it's very it becomes very, very small. In other words, when I'm younger, it, it kind of counterintuitive. When I'm younger, the the cost that I'm paying as a percentage of what I have in the, ca in the cash value is higher than it will be when I'm lit, when I'm older, the costs went up, but my cash value is so much higher. And especially when I'm earning the interest on top of that, the cost becomes such a very small uh, amount compared because of the way we build it. That's the critical piece you have to know. We're building it to minimize those costs. That's what keeps them low. If it's not built in the right way, then kind of the implication here where you're asking, well, could the costs outpace things and the growth and whatnot. There are situations where that can happen if it's not built in the right way, but, but we're minimizing those costs to, to make it so we don't run into that problem. And so one of the companies that we use has done a fair amount of research and due diligence on the actual uh, a company that we work with, due diligence on the costs inside of it and built correctly, they would suggest that there's about a half a percent cost built into the policy over time. So it actually, if it's built the way that we're talking about, where we're minimizing the cost, we're maximizing the cash, there's very little or there's much less life insurance death benefit that's actually being paid for. And for that reason, the interest 
on the act the underlying cash value or interest in dividends will greatly outpace anything that's coming from a cost side but it is it is pretty low okay right. um what age did they start again i think we showed an example of age 46. yep on the capital avalanche is age 46 and i'll say in conjunction with that it's usually about from the time you start in capital avalanche to the time where we start taking income about 12 to 13 years uh get we get to a sweet spot where, where the in income that we start taking off in, of it can be meaningful just to give you some context okay excellent okay rod what is the minimum lump sum for the capital avalanche what did we what what have we gone with yeah it's i mean we'll we'll custom build it to whatever someone's able to set aside like if if you're a high income earner but you're just getting started and you're like well all i can set aside right now is 10 to 20 grand or, or 50 grand or whatever we're going to optimize the build of the policy to that so in the investment optimizer we don't have a minimum for capital avalanche um, the minimum is 100,000 as a starting point. Just to, yeah, and that and that's basically because we have other pieces involved. And so that's the time, the point in time where we determine that it makes the most sense to start leveraging it. If you can put that initial 100K in, um, we can do some really, really incredible things. Yep. Uh, okay, Jeff Haddleman says, thanks guys, I just moved. Thanks guys, how are the loan payments being made to the bank every year for the ongoing and new $100,000 loans? Yeah, the answer is that they're not. So the interest, it, it becomes a, an interest arbitrage. So the growth that we're creating inside of our, our policies compared with the interest that we're going to leave and accrue in the, in the loan, basically the line of credit pays the loan, the, the payment each year. So we're just capitalizing that, that interest inside of the loan. Um, but when you look historically speaking, the the average would be above two percent. We're at, we, when we run our projections, we use two percent because again, especially when you take a long period of time, say a fifteen year time frame, there's never been a time where we would have had less than a two percent spread between what we're earning in the accounts versus what we're accruing in the interest on the loan. So that's actually the the number that we use in our projections. Yeah, good one. Okay, yeah. uh, well that was super fun. Um, thanks everybody for hanging out for us. Thank you for listening to the Money Insights Podcast. To learn more about the financial and business strategies discussed in this show, please visit moneyinsights.net. The views and opinions expressed on the Money Insights Podcast are not intended to be individual financial, tax, or legal advice. Always consult with the appropriate advisor before making financial decisions. And if you're enjoying the show, please feel free to rate, subscribe, and leave a review wherever you listen to your podcasts. This will help others find the show and learn wealth building strategies for themselves. Thanks again for tuning in and we'll catch you in the next episode.